Our scripture reading is from the letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, and you can follow in the church Bibles on page 1,168, Galatians and chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who is with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me, for God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Good evening. Why do you think it is that when we step up on the stage here, we tend to dress formally? I'm normally shirt and shoes. Why is that? Um, I actually think it's a good thing. Um, I, for speaking for myself, my motivation usually is respect. We're, we're doing something serious here. We're hearing God speak, and there's a, a solemnity about that that's appropriate. Um, and my other motivation for normally dressing smartly is, is love, because I don't want to be an unnecessary distraction for Christians who find that sort of dress um, more appropriate. However, I would hate to ever give the impression that in order to be part of the in-crowd in church, you need to wear a certain uniform. I'm going to come back to that later. Um, A journalist in The Spectator recently wrote the following. Christians should face up to this. The whole atonement thing is a terrible muddle, a tangle of primitive and modern thinking, a proselytizing salesman's wheeze, a mess. Trying to make sense of it is a waste of time. Blame Paul, but don't blame Jesus. 
it was never his idea in the first place. He goes on to talk in more detail about Jesus dying as a sacrifice for sin. This, he says, was not what Jesus taught. Rather, Paul came up with it at a later date to satisfy the Gentiles' desire for sacrifice and rescue. Sometimes, as we read through the Gospels, we might come across a sermon from Jesus that doesn't seem to fit the same categories that we've come to uh, recognize in Paul. For example, we might hear the man in Mark 10 ask, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then we hear Jesus question him about the law and say, go and sell everything you have, give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven then come follow me. At least on the surface level, the gospel message um, recorded by the apostles um, and those connected to the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, might seem quite different to the gospel message preached by Paul in Galatians. Last week, we heard Paul say this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The point we were meant to take away uh, last week is that Paul was not a second-hand, a second-rate apostle compared to the real ones like James, Peter, and John, who spent years with Jesus and were involved in the writing of the other New Testament books. But it would be so easy to misinterpret what Paul was saying last week. If Paul received this gospel directly from God without any human intervention, maybe he's just like that Islamic prophet Muhammad who, um, isolated in a cave, supposedly received direct messages from an angel, yet without anyone present to clarify and confirm what actually happened. Maybe Paul was just a loner going off on his own, saying something completely different to everyone else, a different gospel preached elsewhere in the Bible. There were troublemakers in Galatia planting thoughts like that in the minds of the believers there. And um, if that sort of thing hasn't happened to you yet, I'm sure at some point it will. Yet what we're going to see in Galatians 2, the first 10 verses, will give us confidence that the one true gospel preached by Paul is the very same gospel that we see in the rest of the New Testament as well. He and the people involved in writing the rest of it were united on completely the same page. Their unity was held together by three essentials for Christian fellowship. Here's the first one coming up on the screen. Paul and the other apostles were united by not adding to the message. Paul is still in autobiographical mode, and some people try to fit the events that we have here into um, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. But I'm 75% sure that doesn't work. Acts 11 is where Galatians 2 fits in. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation. 
Now, many years have passed since Paul's short visit to see Peter and John, and he's been busy. Paul has been in Syria telling people about Jesus, but now the threat level has risen to uh, level five, or it's flashing red anyway. There's a conspiracy formed to kill him. But thankfully, Paul's friends heard about it before it happened, so uh, he escaped the city walls by being lowered down in a basket out from a window. And then he went to a church in a place called Antioch, where huge crowds of many different nationalities uh, gathered to hear him preach. And one day, a prophet called Agabus stands up with a revelation from God. He prophesied that a huge famine was going to really hit the entire of the Roman Empire. So what, are the, what is the church there going to do? They decided that they should send Paul and Barnabas to bring aid to the poor, persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. That's what happens in Acts 11. So after many years, Paul is returning to Jerusalem. He's going to provide for the poor there. But as we see in Galatians 2, the next couple of verses, he's also got an ulterior motive. Verse 2, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. He's worried. He's worried that he might have run his race in vain. What does that mean? He's not scared that he's got the gospel wrong. That's not what he's worried about. Rather, he's worried that there might be a split between the Gentile and the Jewish Christian churches. Such a division would cause terrible damage to God's family. Such a division would undermine what he had been working for all this time. His efforts for unity would have been wasted. So he calls a private meeting and presents the message that he's been preaching all these years. He wants to see if the apostles in Jerusalem are going to add anything to his message. Will they ask him to get his Gentile believers to fit in with the Jewish cultural identity? Will they tell him to get them circumcised? Will they all be united as kind of... um, peas in the Jewish Christian pod? Will they preach gospel plus something else? Verse three, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in for them, into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There's a group of false believers who really think the Greek Christian, Titus, ought to be circumcised. I'm not going to spend loads of time talking about circumcision. It's going to come up later in chapter 3. But suffice for now to say that it was the external mark of who the Old Testament family of God were, at least for 50% of the family. So um, are they going to insist on Titus being circumcised? 
even when this group of false believers suggested it, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, say no. They refuse to compel him to do so. They did not add any extra requirements to Paul's message. As we read in verse 6, they added nothing to my message. No extra requirements. And this is so important. This is really vital. Paul says that by resisting this, they preserved the truth of the gospel. If the Greek Titus had been forced to follow the Jewish law in order to be accepted, the very truth of the gospel would have been corrupted. Why? Because while the gospel equals freedom, gospel plus equals slavery. It immediately puts the shackles back on. Adding any extra requirements in order to be accepted, either by God or by us, completely corrupts the message. And the other apostles were in complete agreement with Paul here. They gave no additional requirements. Their unity was based on not adding to the message. And I think this should give us great confidence when we read Galatians or any of Paul's letters. When we read really brilliant verses like Galatians 3, 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Um, Sometimes an intrusive thought might pop up in our minds. Surely it can't be that simple. Surely it can't just be faith. There must be something else that's needed in order to be called God's child. Remember that Paul and the rest of the people that wrote the New Testament are in complete agreement on this. There really is nothing else required. Becoming a Christian isn't about being put in a box, whether that's a a Jewish Christian cultural identity box or any other type of cultural box either. We don't need to become peas in a cultish pod. Gentiles don't have to become Jews. Working class people don't have to become middle class. People from other parts of the world don't have to take on British cultural identity or any other for that matter. There is no type you need to fit in in order to belong here in this church or in God's family generally. That's just not how gospel unity works. We're not to be peas in a pod. I went to a preacher's conference this week, and it was really good. So helpful. Everyone there was, um, was really friendly. But I must have missed the email about the dress code. There were... Um, it just so happens that David completely fulfills the dress code today. There were uh, quarter-length zip jumpers everywhere. Everyone had check shirts on, chinos and boat shoes. Well done for wearing all of that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with wearing those things at all. But being there, it did make me think this is representative of a distinct cultural identity to this group. And, and it was an identity that made... A few of us quite uncomfortable for that reason. Please know that there is no uniform you have to wear in order to belong. There is no external marker that you need to wear in order to be accepted or welcomed here. 
That's not what belonging in God's family is about. Paul and the other apostles were united by not adding to the message. And secondly, they were united by recognizing the gospel of grace. Verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Does Paul sound a little bit disrespectful here? Whatever they were makes no difference to me. Speaking of highly regarded apostles. Remember from last week that those troublemakers were accusing Paul of being a tier beneath, a second-rate apostle. So in that context, actually what Paul's doing here, he's not being disrespectful. He's just refusing to bow down to people who, as, as if they were in a category above him. He is just as much an apostle as they are. If he had been disrespectful, then I doubt very much that the handshake of verse 9 would have happened. And I think this sounds like a, a proper handshake. This is the right hand of fellowship. This is not the, the limp hand of, I'm still not used to physical contact since COVID handshake. Um, it represented a strong bond of mutual partnership and unity. Let's continue from verse 7. And I'd like you to take notice of what the other apostles recognize. Verse 7. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. <clears throat> Three things that they recognized. They recognized that they and Paul have the same task, the same task. They've got different parishes. Paul is among the uncircumcised Gentiles. Peter is among the circumcised Jewish Christians. Their churches probably have different styles. The people sing different songs. They probably dress differently. They speak in different languages. They wear their, their hair differently. But even in these different parishes, they still have the same mission. They both preach the gospel. Everything else might be different, but the most important thing is exactly the same. They recognize that they had the same task. And in verse 8, they recognize the same God. He's at work in Peter, and he is at work in Paul. Every time they stand up to preach this gospel, God is making things happen. In all their churches, the gospel is transforming lives as People are rescued and taught to live in freedom rather than slavery. And they're both equally sent by God as his apostles. So, same task, same God. And in verse 9, they recognize the same grace. Paul could be saying, the grace that is my apostleship. He does speak of his ministry in that way 
elsewhere. But he also uses that turn of phrase to refer to the grace that has been given to all believers everywhere. All our personal ministries, indeed everything we have as Christians, is grace. It's a gift that is initiated by God and completely undeserved by us. Just last week, we heard that God called Paul by his grace. He was a violent man, excelling in religion, but completely ignorant of God. Then the grace of Jesus Christ stopped him in his tracks and changed his life forever. He deserved nothing. He initiated nothing. But God was gracious to him. Grace became the subject of all his sermons. Jesus lived, died, and rose so that undeserving people like me, like you, can have acceptance, welcome, belonging. It's a gift that we receive through faith without any extra additional requirements. Do you recognize that grace in your life? Some people try to fit into God's family based on all the additional external stuff. Do you think that you belong because you dress a certain way? Do you think that you belong because you speak a certain way? Do you think that you belong because Christians are your sort of people? Maybe you like Christianity because of that external side. It's respectable, it's polite, it's traditional. I've got to warn you that none of that external stuff matters one bit. You'll only get that right hand of fellowship welcoming you into God's family if underlying everything you are relying on the gospel of grace. Take some time to think that over with the Lord. The other apostles recognized the same task, the same God, and the same grace. They shook hands because they were united in the gospel. And this should give us real confidence when people try to point out inconsistencies in the New Testament. They say that the message in the Gospels is different from the message in Paul's letters. Sometimes you might invite a colleague or a family member to a Bible talk and they just shut you down. And without doing any investigation of their own, they'll sometimes make the excuse, I'm not interested in Christianity because the New Testament is just full of contradictions. But that just isn't true. Yes, when John records Jesus' sermons, um, it sounds a little bit different to Paul. Yes, when Matthew writes his gospel, it sounds different again. But this is just because they all worked in different parishes. They had different styles. They had different purposes. Of course, there are going to be superficial variations in wording and emphasis. But at the fundamental level, they are all in complete agreement. They have the same task, the same God, the same grace. They shook hands because they're preaching the same gospel. There's one last uh, essential to gospel unity, and this is only a short point. Paul and the other apostles were united by remembering the poor. Let's um, pick up again in verse 9. James, Cephas, and John those esteemed as pillars, 
gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. There's a lot that could be said about our responsibility as church to care for the poor in our society in general. Um, There's a lot that could be said, actually, from Galatians. We're going to get to it later. Do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. But it's vital that we let the Holy Spirit set the agenda for what we preach. And that kind of generosity to all is not what's mainly the meaning or the purpose here. Instead, we're actually all the way back to where we started. Verse 2 said that Paul went to Jerusalem in response to a revelation. And I've already said about Acts 11, that revelation was Agabus standing up and saying, there's going to be a famine. We need to go to help out the poor Christians in Jerusalem. At this point, those Jewish Christians faced more persecution. They were more poor than the rest of the Roman world. So the believers in Antioch decided that they would send aid to them. Really, what the apostles are asking of Paul here is that, yes, you're going to go one way, we're going to go the other way. You're going to go to the Gentile Christians, we're going to go to the Jewish Christians. But, but we don't want two churches. We don't want two churches They're asking Paul to keep supporting Christians in their Jewish Christian parish. They're urging him that the Gentile and Jewish churches should not just simply coexist peaceably but separately. Rather, they should stay tightly connected, sharing resources in dependence on one another as one church. It's the very thing that Paul had been eager to do all along. And in many of his letters, the same theme comes up again and again and again. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 10 is all about this. Collecting offerings to bring back with him to Jerusalem in support of the poor. The significance is this. Yes, Paul and the other apostles, they had different parishes. But there was no great split between Gentile church, Jewish Christian church. They all belonged to one church in mutual dependence on one another. Yet another reason why we should be confident that the gospel Paul preaches in Galatians is the one true gospel. He's not only speaking for one small section of the church, he's speaking for the whole church in its entirety, the one church in mutual dependence on one another. Paul and the apostles, the other ones, they were united by adding nothing to the message, recognizing the gospel of grace, and remembering the poor. We're going to hear loads of really fantastic stuff in the rest of Galatians. There's going to be so much which is really moving. There's going to be so much which is really transforming to -to day-to-day life. But this passage is really, really helpful for us because it builds our confidence in what Paul is saying. Those Gentile, original Galatian Christians needed it because troublemakers were planting doubts. Paul, he's, he's a subpar apostle. He's saying something different to what the others are saying. We need to know that same truth as well. 
Paul is not a subpar apostle. He's saying the very same gospel that is preached in the rest of the New Testament as well. We can be 100% confident in that, even when silly articles come up in the spectator saying otherwise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for genuine good news. Thank you that we can have confidence in what we're going to hear over the next few weeks. Because it's not just one person's opinion, but it's, it's your gospel, your one true gospel. And Father, we pray that as we seek to be a church of gospel unity, that you would unite us in this way as well. Please keep us from adding extra requirements in order to belong, in order to be welcomed, in order to be accepted. Please help us to focus on the one thing that does unite us, that gospel of grace. Thank you so much for grace. Thank you for taking the initiative when we were running in the opposite direction. Thank you for stepping in and giving us your riches that we so obviously don't deserve. We praise you and worship you for that grace. And we pray that you would help us to live by it. In Jesus' name, amen.